Live from New York, I'm Allison Kosick in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. New year, new records. Coronavirus cases continue to surge around the world. COVID cancellations. Thousands more flights are grounded as winter storms and Omicron hit. Speeding sales. Tesla posts record figures for 2021. It's Monday. Let's make a move. And a very warm welcome to the first move of 2022. Happy New Year. It's the first trading day of the year, which follows one that will be hard to beat. All three main U.S. indices gained between 19 and 27 percent in 2021, breaking record after record in the process. Investors clearly focus on positives such as vaccines rather than new variants of the coronavirus or rising inflation. U.S. futures are pointing towards more of the same today. Hope generally dominates despite a surge in cases caused by Omicron and an ongoing travel chaos. More on that in a moment. Automakers are driving the gains with Tesla leading the way. Europe is also starting the year on a high. The London FTSE is closed for a public holiday, but encouraging data from the Eurozone regarding manufacturing and inflation is pushing other indices to records once again despite reported COVID cases at their highest since the pandemic began. In Asia, the beleaguered Chinese property giant Evergrande has halted trading its shares in Hong Kong. The company said in a filing to the stock exchange that it's pending, quote, an announcement containing inside information, although it did not give more details. The Hang Seng fell while other indices were mixed. The Nikkei was closed. Now let's get straight to the drivers. France will continue to see record-breaking COVID-19 numbers over the coming days, says its health minister. The country eased quarantine rules for the fully vaccinated Sunday as Omicron surges across Europe. Officials in Ireland say they recorded more cases over the holidays than in the whole of 2020. Barbie Nadell joins me now. Barbie, good to see you. Happy New Year to you. And now I would imagine that everyone is bracing for a post-holiday spike in the number of COVID cases. That's as people socialized over the holidays even more. That's right. You know, we're standing in front of a testing center, which is also a vaccine center. We've just seen a steady stream of people getting tested. It's either because they have symptoms or because they were in contact with someone who's COVID positive. As these cases surge across Europe, where, you know, the concentration is how to get the kids back to school and how to keep them in school. We've seen country after country come down with new restrictions about what to do if there's a positive case in the classroom. In France, it, the kids that are in that class have to test three out of four days. In Italy, if there are three cases, that class is online. So that's a real concern right now after the holiday season where everybody got together. And they're telling us that we haven't hit the peak or the plateau quite yet on this latest uh, wave, Allison. Yeah, and we're just learning that uh, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has warned of considerable pressure on hospitals coming uh, in, in the coming weeks. Yeah, that's right. And we're seeing that here across continental Europe as well. And it's not just the patients in the hospital. It's the doctors and the nurses and the support staff that are coming down with COVID or coming down with the Omicron variant. They may not be that sick. They may not even have symptoms. But if they're positive, they can't go to work. We're also seeing in other sectors as well, the bus drivers, the garbage collectors, all of these sorts of things have a huge impact on how how these cities run and how these countries deal with it. Everybody wants to avoid a lockdown. That's economic disaster. Uh, Again, 
you know, we're talking two years into this now. You remember maybe Italy was the first epicenter of the pandemic back almost two years ago when those strict lockdowns in this country really, really wreaked havoc on the economy. Then nobody wants to go back to that. So if it means testing, if it means, you know, a little bit of quarantine to keep people safe, that's what they'd rather do than lock people down again. Allison? Right. But there's certainly uh, it's clear how disruptive COVID can be once you get those cases in school. The bus drivers can't drive. They can't have class and so on and so on. Barbie Nadeau, thanks so much. In China, the number of daily cases has dropped in the city of Xi'an with fewer than 100 infections on Sunday. But the city's 13 million people are still under a strict lockdown ahead of next month's Winter Olympics. Christy Lu Stout has the latest. There is growing desperation in Xi'an as the city enters its 12th day of lockdown. On Monday, China reported 101 new local cases, down from 131 a day earlier. And the vast majority of new cases are in the northern city of Xi'an. It's home to the famous Terracotta Warriors. It's also a major industrial and tech hub that is home to 13 million people. And ahead of the Winter Olympics in Beijing next month, China has been going all out to put an end to the Xi'an outbreak. Uh, since December the 23rd, this entire city of millions has been under lockdown. Residents are forbidden from leaving their homes unless it's for a COVID test. They cannot go out for food or basic supplies. And there has also been public shaming of people accused of breaching COVID-19 safety laws. And on Sunday, Xi'an announced that two senior Chinese Communist Party officials had been removed from their posts to, quote, strengthen prevention and control of the epidemic, unquote. Uh, we've also been monitoring social media in China to get a picture of life in this quarantine metropolis. And on Friday, this footage emerged on Weibo of a man being beaten by COVID-19 prevention workers at the entrance of a Xi'an residential compound. The the man was trying to enter with a bag of steam buns. There is an altercation. The man stumbles. The buns he's holding, they scatter all over the ground. And in response to this viral video, local police put out a statement. They acknowledged that there was a dispute and that epidemic control staff assaulted the man. And afterwards, two staff members apologized and they were fined and detained for seven days. Now, the Chinese government has vowed to deliver three to five days worth of groceries to people still stuck in their homes. Christy Lustout, CNN. Hong Kong. Here in the U.S., air travel troubles continue. Some 1,900 flights have been canceled so far today, according to FlightAware. It's caused by COVID-related staffing issues as well as winter storms. Pete Montine is live at Reagan National Airport outside Washington, D.C. Pete, I know you've been following uh, this aviation agony for many, many days. Are we seeing any improvement today at all? Agony is the way to put it, Allison. You know, a quarter of all flights canceled here at Reagan National Airport. That is the most flight cancellations of any airport nationwide. Also, big cancellations at Dulles, at BWI, also at LaGuardia. You know, we are not out of the woods just yet. There were layering issues with those Omicron-related flight crew sickouts, but now there is this snowstorm. The snow coming down pretty good here at Reagan National Airport. Every so often we hear a roar. It sounds like a jet. It's not. It's a snowplow. Just look at the numbers. 1,800 flight cancellations so far across the country today. About 10% of Southwest Airlines schedule, but another 10% of the SkyWest schedule. It's the smaller regional airline that operates commuter flights for American, Delta, and United. About 13% of JetBlue's schedule. 
They fly up and down the East Coast, big hub in New York. You know, we are not done with these cancellations. They'll probably go up even more as the day goes on and the snow keeps coming down. We have seen long lines at airports across the country as the storm also made its way across the Midwest. In Chicago, in Atlanta, we heard of people staying overnight in the airport in Atlanta. And I just want you to listen to one traveler who was stuck in the Atlanta airport trying to get home since Thursday. Oh, we don't have that sound bite, I'm told. But, you know, the airlines say that those Omicron-related sickouts have actually tapered off a little bit. Uh, they're actually about the same as they've been for the last few days, according to American Airlines. They also say at American that really this was a big issue at O'Hare in Chicago just yesterday. And they're also able to get out of the woods just a little bit here. But this was so far supposed to be a big day for air travel here in the U.S. January 3rd was going to be one of the biggest days of the holiday travel season when everyone begins coming home all at once. We've seen about 17,000 cancellations in total, Allison, since Christmas Eve. You know, it's okay that we didn't go to that sound, but we can only imagine how it feels to be stuck since Thursday <laughs> in the airport. Let me ask you this. I mean, yeah. is there anything that <laughs> is there anything that airlines can do to beef up their staffs? Because, look, I realize a lot of this is weather, but a lot of, a lot of it is also, um, you know, people calling out sick because of Omicron. That's right. You know, and the airlines are really looking to try and get people back. No fact. The fact of the matter is that airlines got a lot smaller during the pandemic, not only in the size of their airplane fleets, but also in the number of employees they've had. So they're trying to incentivize some coming back by paying them double and triple time in some cases. You know, it's a tough rub for airlines because they don't want people to show up to work sick, although if they do show up to work sick, then they can cause even bigger problems. So the airlines are saying, stay away if you can, but if they don't come in, then that causes staffing shortages and then more flight cancellations. So really compounding issues here, Allison. Yeah, double-edged sword there. Pete Montine, thanks so much. In Hong Kong, the largest remaining independent news outlet is now closing. Citizen News says the decision was made for the safety of its staff. It comes just days after police raided the offices of pro-democracy website Stand News, forcing it to close. Ivan Watson is in Hong Kong for us. Ivan, this is yet another independent news outlet that covered the pro-democracy movements in Hong Kong that's now being targeted by Beijing. Yeah, it's part of a much broader pattern of forms of dissent that were tolerated and I would argue protected for decades that are being shut down now in different forms over the past year and a half. Uh, The latest now is Citizen News, which announced on its Facebook page uh, with this title, Thank You and So Long, that it would basically close up its operations on Tuesday, uh, citing, as you mentioned, safety of its staff. Take a listen to what its chief writer had to say. Uh, overall, uh, media is facing a, a, an increasingly tough uh, a- environment. And, and for those uh, who, who are being seen as uh, critical or troublemakers, um, they, are more, they are more vulnerable. Um, so um, this is what uh, we are facing, and, um, and, and that's why we um, made the decision Now, this organization had been around for five years, uh, and then, of course, it's closing down. What is he referring to? Well, last June, uh, the biggest tabloid newspaper in Hong Kong, Apple Daily, I watched its printing presses 
come to a stop for the very last time. This was after police had raided its newsroom, had arrested its publisher and some of its top editors, seized uh, the publishing company's assets, and it said it was forced to close. And just last Wednesday, we saw a police raid on another independent news outlet, Stand News, with a police raid on the newsroom, uh, at least seven people connected to that online publication who were arrested and charged with sedition. So what it appears now is that Citizen News is preemptively closing down, as they're hinting at, uh, to protect their staff uh, and their assets from being seized by the authorities. Now, the Hong Kong government, when asked about this kind of targeting of publications here that happened to criticize government officials, uh, they argued, no, 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 this has nothing to do with targeting journalism. This is targeting uh, alleged criminals. It's targeting uh, people who are a threat to national security. Uh, They call it wolves in sheep's clothing, people who disguise themselves as journalists to then do all sorts of uh, alleged nefarious Things, But if you look at the broader pattern here, uh, where you have a number of publications shut down, uh, the uh, politicians who were in once accepted opposition political parties, either in jail or in exile, and the street protests that were once part of this city's culture have effectively been banned for two years, purportedly on health grounds because of COVID, it all adds up to a pretty broad crackdown on dissent in a city that once enjoyed these freedoms. Yeah, and I think it certainly adds up to a uh, very disturbing trend. Ivan Watson, thanks so much for your reporting. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. U.S. President Joe Biden has told Ukrainian leader Volodymyr Zelensky that America and its allies would respond decisively if Russia further invades Ukraine. The leader spoke by phone Sunday ahead of diplomatic talks between the U.S. and Russia this month. Washington is urging Moscow to ease tensions after amassing thousands of troops near Ukraine's borders. Our Nick Robertson joins us now from Moscow with more. So, Nick, the United States obviously watching the situation very closely. Do you think that sanctions um, in, in the way that the U.S. kind of phrases it the deci- are the, really the decisive response? And, and if that is the response, would sanctions really be enough to deter Putin? You know, I think the economic and financial uh, sanctions that President Biden communicated very clearly to President Putin during their first phone phone conversation back in early December and then again uh, on the 30th of December um, were for President Putin um, part of his calculus of, well, these haven't been articulated publicly, how big and how bad they can be. And Russia has withstood a, a vast number of sanctions over the recent years. Um, and there's a, a view now, though, that's being expressed by the White House that perhaps does have a little more resonance uh, with the Kremlin. And that is that it wouldn't just be these economic sanctions. There would be a military cost as well. Remembering that President Biden has said U.S. troops are not going to come into Ukraine uh, to fight alongside Ukrainian troops if there was a Russian invasion. The British have said the same, and that's been the indication from NATO partners. But the, but the military price to pay is that NATO, President Biden says, would increase its forces in Eastern Europe. That's the western flank of Russia, if you like, as the way that President Putin sees it. 
And that's exactly what President Putin is trying to avoid at the moment. He is trying to make sure that Ukraine can't become part of NATO, that NATO gets pushed further back from Russia's western borders. So I think what President Biden has articulated and made it more public now um, is it's not just an economic threat. There are military implications that don't necessarily threaten a war, but they give the reverse effect of what President Putin's trying to achieve. Now, it's not clear that that's a final position. It's not clear that this is what's going to keep the two sides from making some sort of diplomatic agreement. Um, but it does up the ante, and it certainly does convey that message that alone, um, probably economic sanctions might not have been enough to deter if Russia was planning, and they say they're not, an invasion of Ukraine. Is there a, a realistic path to de-escalation here? Not an immediately obvious one. I, I mean, one of the things that came out of the conversation with, between President Biden and the Ukrainian President Zelensky was talk about the Minsk agreement. Uh, this was the ceasefire agreement that came into effect, the second version of it, early 2015, to end the fighting of the Russian-backed separatists in the east of Ukraine with the Ukrainian government. Um, it has really been stalled. It's not going anywhere. Uh, the line of control, the sort of front line between the two sides is, is potentially still dangerous. So uh, out of that conversation, there's, there's a diplomatic push to achieve more in terms of the Minsk II agreement. Diplomat, you know, confidence building measures is the way the White House puts it. Uh, the, the, you know, the, 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 the Ukrainian president has put it in the frame of, you know, diplomacy to try to, to, try to advance the uh, advance the Minsk agreement. But even that, you know, it's mild in controversy on both sides. Uh, and certainly any giving of ground from the Ukrainian government perspective um, would lock in potential gains for the Russian-backed separatists. Uh, and that's not something that's going to happen readily and easily. But it does seem that at least that's an area where there can be a de-escalation of tensions and perhaps some diplomatic movement. But it still doesn't get to President Putin's so, uh, sort of stated concern, uh, legal guarantees to stop Ukraine becoming part of NATO. Okay, Nick Robertson in Moscow, thanks so much for all that great context. And for the second time in six months, Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro has been hospitalized with an intestinal obstruction. The hospital says he's in a stable condition and receiving treatment. In a tweet, the president said he would be tested to determine if he needs surgery. Sudan's prime minister has resigned after days of violent protests against military rule. Abdallah Hamdok has, has served as civilian premier under a power-sharing deal with military leaders, but said he would step down after being unable to forge a consensus. In a speech, he praised demonstrators for demanding freedom and justice. Still to come on First Move, one of the first doctors to encounter the Omicron variant on what she is seeing now in South Africa. And Tesla's triumph over supply chain snags. The electric car maker delivers a record number of cars despite chip shortages. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick, and we're just minutes away from the opening bell ringing for the first time in 2022. Hopes are high after a year that was one of the best for equities on record. Futures are pointing to a mixed open with gains for automakers and recovery stocks. Oil prices are falling ahead of an OPEC Plus meeting happening on Tuesday. The cartel and its allies are expected to stick to their earlier plan to start raising output. 
Back to our top story, the efforts to contain Omicron. One of the doctors who first encountered the variant in South Africa says the country is past the peak of infections. As you can see, the seven-day average of daily cases is falling sharply. And a study has found that most Omicron patients in South Africa weren't as sick as people hospitalized with earlier variants. That doctor is Angelique Kutsi, National Chair of the South African Medical Association, and she joins us from Pretoria. Great to have you with us, doctor. Uh, good um, afternoon from Pretoria, and it's great to be with you, and I wish you and your viewers a great 2022. And we wish you a, a very happy new year as well. I want to hear about how it was to be the one of the first doctors to treat patients with Omicron. When was it that you realized you were seeing a different variant than Delta? Yeah, it was on the 18th of November last year when I got a, a family in um, that didn't meet the criteria of Delta. Um, in our country, we treat differently. Most of us still um, of old school and we let patients come in into the surgery and we treat our patients after we examine them with a clinical examination. And that's how we, that's how I um, noticed that the symptoms doesn't make any sense. I've treated personally over 600 Delta patients. So I'm quite familiar with the clinical symptoms and the disease progression with, mm-hmm. with Delta. And um, immediately this was not the same. Right, right. So now that South Africa has passed its peak, which means you're seeing fewer Omicron cases than you were, let's say, two months ago, November 18th. How concerned are you that there's going to be complacency in South Africa about the pandemic itself? Well, I think um, it's not only South Africa. I think it's a a global phenomenon that everyone are, um, you know, they're getting tired of listening and doing what they're supposed to do. So, yes, it's definitely going to happen. But um, again, we have sort of um, a lot of the restrictions, the curfews has been taken away. However, we're still very um, adamant regarding the wear of masks, and we have been mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, um, promoting the wearing of masks since the pandemic started. You will not that easily go into any of our shopping centres um, uh, uh, without a mask. They will ask mm-hmm. you to leave, or they will ask you to get a mask. So for right. us, it's it's still the most important thing is the simplicity of, of, of uh, trying to prevent the spreading of virus infections. What are the lessons that other countries can learn from South Africa? So first of all, um, you know, we, the country should stop making uh, a huge thing about how many cases are there every day because we ask people to go and test. So, so the moment when they go and test and the case numbers are high, then everyone is up in arms. But but you're asking them to go and test. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we need to to start to get a balance. A balance between 99% of people will be treated at primary health care level. However, 1% might end up in hospital. And I know if the case load are high, that it might mean a lot of people. But if you look at what we are seeing in South Africa, currently, um, with the stats of yesterday, there's only 310 ventilated patients across South Africa, 660 facilities. We have, however, 1,390 oxygenated 
patients. But again, it is not a huge amount of people. Right. Um, if you look what happened with Delta. Doctor, is it inevitable now that Omicron is fading there and you can sort of see a pattern before we are because we're in the thick of it here in the United States? Is it inevitable that there's just a new variant around the corner? That's difficult. I think um, there, you know, this is this virus is very unpredictable. However, my gut feeling is there will be a new variant somewhere coming in again. Because remember, the virus' sole purpose is to survive. So it's not in the virus' best interest to kill everyone off. And if the virus finds it difficult with the vaccines to, um, you know, to, 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 to keep on surviving or with your own immune system, there will be a new variant coming. And hopefully it will be, you know, not a very potent one again. Um, and we can live with, with the Omicron variant at this stage. And I think a lot of people will get um, uh, immunity from Omicron because half of the people won't even know that they have been infected with Omicron. So with people getting that immunity, do you think Omicron could actually speed up this path from moving from a pandemic stage to the, endem the, to the endemic stage? Yeah, definitely, um, especially if you look at the, the, the mildness of the cases. And I know that WHO doesn't want us to, wear, to use the term mildness. I know that a lot of the scientists doesn't want us to use the term mildness, but this is what it is. I cannot say it is a very severe disease. Yes, it's severe if you are in ICU, if you are um, uh, on mechanical uh, ventilation, if you're getting ECMO, if you're getting um, acute respiratory disease, mm -hmm. that's something else. But if, again, if you look at the, top, the, 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 the numbers, really, really ending up with severe disease on, 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 on ventilation, mm -hmm. um, it's not a lot. 310 is not a lot. Okay, Dr. Angelique Kutzi, thanks so much for everything that you've been doing. And thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. And please stay safe. Okay, you too. Stay with First Move. The Market Open is next. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. U.S. stock investors are off to the races as we start the first trading day of the year. Earlier optimism has fizzled out a bit with modest gains right now for the S&P 500. The Dow looks flat. And uh, the Nasdaq is uh, is flat as well, <laughs> actually up, up three quarters of a percent. Um, investors are weighing positives such as the vaccine rollout and solid consumer spending against supply chain issues, rising prices and the COVID surge. One sector doing well today is autos. Tesla is firmly in the driver's seat after it reported record sales in the last quarter. That's despite a global chip shortage that has hindered many competitors. Paula Monica joins me live now. Paul, Happy New Year. I'm sure that uh, Elon Musk is thrilled today um, after it had its latest quarter. Dan Ives at Wedbush uh, summed up the fourth quarter delivery number for Tesla, calling it a trophy case quarter. So then the question is, what's the momentum for Tesla as we move into 2022? Is the bar just too high? Yeah, it's a great question, Allison. I mean, we're talking about a, a company that is now worth more than a trillion dollars. So the expectations are very high for Tesla. But as Dan Ives pointed out, the company really is firing on all cylinders right now. They 
were able to do extremely well in the fourth quarter, despite those well-publicized chip shortages that have hurt the broader automotive industry. And I think that's in part due to the fact that Tesla did have some issues earlier last year that it worked through, um, you know, having a lot of its own uh, technology in its cars, including those automatic software updates that mitigates some of the problems that it had due to continued semiconductor uh, shortages around the globe. So that obviously helped. And Tesla is now a company that is the clear leader in a rapidly growing electric vehicle market. Because make no mistake, Allison, there's a lot of competition coming from the likes of traditional automakers such as Ford and GM, as well as upstarts such as uh, Rivian and Lucid, which both have uh, you know uh, electric vehicles that recently won um, you know industry awards for having you know great technology as well right oh the pressure is always on to up your game right even for uh, elon musk and speaking of elon musk for the past several weeks i know we've been monitoring how many tesla shares uh, musk has been selling and the proceeds from those sales going to pay an 11 billion dollar tax bill so it leaves him with about three to five billion left over any ideas paul you know what elon musk will do with this you know spare change Exactly. The world's wealthiest individual does have some spare change, it seems, Allison. My colleague, Chris Isidore, has an interesting uh, story on CNN Business right now. His take is that potentially Musk could be using some of the proceeds from these Tesla stock sales to invest directly into his other major business venture, SpaceX, which is a company that requires a lot of cash because of the massive amounts of operating expenses due to launching satellites. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not SpaceX, which is one of the world's most valuable private companies out there, benefits from all of these Tesla stock sales that uh, Elon Musk has been making as Tesla shares have risen pretty dramatically in the past year or so. That will be interesting to see. Paula Monica, thanks so much. And Sam Stovall is the chief investment strategist at investment research platform CFRA, and he joins us via Skype. Great to see you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Allison. Let's go ahead and start with tech. Uh, technology investors, you know, who zeroed in on these mega cap stocks like Tesla, like Apple and NVIDIA, they did really well in 2021. But small to mid caps in tech have fallen in the double digits or it's fallen by the double digits below their highs. So the question I have for you, are valuations too stretched for these big tech names? And could tech be headed for a bear market in 2022? Well, certainly uh, interest rates are among the major concerns that we have to face for 2022. The Fed has already told us that it is unwinding uh, its bond purchasing program and will be done with that by the first quarter and said that it's likely to raise interest rates three times in the second half of 2022. So when you look back to history, because it's a great guide, although it's never gospel, whenever we have seen an increase in interest rates, we have seen a reduction in the price to earnings ratio for the S&P 500. So like valuing real estate price per square foot, investors value stocks price per earnings, and usually they're willing to pay less as interest rates go up. Talk with me more about what you think is in store for the markets in 2022. I mean, you know, the, the bar again is very high. S&P climbed 27% in 2021. What do you see um, for the markets in 2022? You know, when, when we talk about 
the Fed, inflation, and the pandemic? Sure. Well, I think it's going to be a good year, but not a great year. Uh, history uh, implies that whenever we've had a gain of 20% or more, then the market continues to rise pretty nicely up about 10%. But obviously, that's an average. There have been observations where it's actually fallen. I believe that we're going to see the S&P up about 5% for the full year, and the headwinds are going to increase the volatility. This is President Biden's second year in office, also typically called the sophomore slump, uh, in which the volatility or price action in the market has been 40% higher than the average for the other three years of the presidential cycle. Also, when we are looking at earnings rising by 7.5% this year versus the near 44% surge in 2021, investors are going to be very careful about what stocks they buy, especially if they look overvalued. What do you think is the biggest worry for Wall Street? Do you think it's inflation? Well, I think it's interest rates because that's really what drives the value of stocks using discounted cash flow or intrinsic value models. The biggest input is interest rates and investors try to get a guess as to where interest rates are going to go based on inflation. We do think that inflation will peak in the first quarter at about a 6.9% year-on-year rise for headline uh, CPI, but then come down to about 3.2% by the fourth quarter of 2022. So inflation will still be elevated compared with the last several years, but I think the biggest worry is how aggressive will the Fed be uh, with its interest rate increases. Are you thinking that the market's a little bit too complacent lately with seeing those strides it made in 2021, a little complacent with, with so much, so many headwinds to deal with? Yes, I do. Uh, I think that right now, while the overall trend is positive for a majority of the U.S. indices, um, we like to say every so often that the market gets ahead of itself. It gets overbought. And I think that's where we are right now. So I wouldn't be surprised if after a couple of good trading sessions, maybe even a couple of good weeks, that we do start to see the market falter a little bit. But I don't expect this bull market to be ending anytime this year. How should investors be positioned right now? Well, uh, I guess really it depends on the investor themselves. If they are an income-oriented investor, then they should be focusing on those companies that have had a, a high consistency of raising earnings and dividends. Make sure that they're buying those stocks uh, whose dividends do not exceed their earnings uh, and also have lower volatility than the market itself. I think for right now, in general, investors should have good exposure to equities. And while interest rates remain low, they can stick with some of the growth areas like consumer discretionary, like technology. But there's an old adage that um, sell in May and go away. I always say you're better off rotating than you are retreating because usually it's the defensive areas like food, beverage, tobacco, healthcare, and utilities that do better in that very challenging May through October period. Okay, Sam Stovall of CFRA, thanks so much for your perspective today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Sure. Coming up next, America's COVID-19 testing crisis. I'll be talking with the CEO of a provider about the shortages.
After a weekend of muted celebrations, Americans are set to return to work and school amid record high COVID-19 cases. To make matters worse, the Omicron surge is colliding with a severe testing crisis. President Biden has promised to start delivering 500 million COVID-19 tests this month to tackle the shortage. Joining me is Julia Cheek. She's the CEO and founder of Everly Health, an at-home lab testing company. Great to see you and have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Allison. Walk us through what uh, Everly Health provides in the way of COVID tests. So Everly Health is a digital health company offering end-to-end virtual care solutions for diagnostic testing. And we've been a critical digital first responder during the pandemic since March of 2020. Today, we have a wide offering of both third-party manufactured rapid antigen tests like Becton Dickinson's test, Quidel's test, et cetera, as well as over-the-counter at-home mail-in PCR testing. We also partner with some of the largest pharmacies in the country like Walgreens and Rite Aid to provide HHS drive-through PCR testing. So we have um, an end-to-end compliant platform for all forms of testing, including telehealth consults and hopefully therapies in the near future. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm curious what you thought when President Biden announced Americans will receive tests through the mail this month. Do you think it's a little too late or it's, you know, hey, it's about time that this is happening? I think it's probably both of those, right? We think this is a significant move in the right direction, but in order for testing to truly help and serve all Americans during the pandemic, we really need to see reimbursed telehealth. We need to see reimbursed shipping costs and the entire experience of managing COVID-19 needs to be provided free and fully reimbursed for all Americans. And so I think while this is a move in the right direction, I'm hoping that as we learn more about the distribution plan for these imminently, um, that we start to see provisions specifically for telehealth and shipping to make comprehensive impact for people that need tests at this critical time. Why do you think it wasn't a priority? Should it have been a priority? I'm talking about testing early on in the pandemic. I mean, you were the second company to receive FDA approval to distribute at-home tests. Um, You know, what are your thoughts about um, the administration's lack of prioritization of testing? I think that the administration has been responding to the waves as we've seen them. And we have observed as we serve hundreds of organizations, um, including municipalities uh, and federal and state um, contracts, as well as employers and private companies, that the testing demand has waxed and waned substantially. And this is an infrastructure that unfortunately has not been modernized to be able to scale and automate in in real compressed timelines. In fact, we've been able, because we have a technology that has providers across the country, labs, logistics, et cetera, we've been able to adhere to a a one to two day turnaround time throughout the pandemic with our lab partners. But that is only because we had this technology enabled infrastructure. You look at companies trying to scale rapidly uh, manufacturing facilities for rapid tests, uh, laboratory equipment and staff, and they're facing the same shortages that we're seeing um, throughout the healthcare uh, labor market today and throughout manufacturing and logistics. And so I don't know that it was not a priority for the administration, but I think the ability to move quickly in these different surges has not yet been a problem that's been solved by the government and private sector alike. Is your company involved in the distribution of these test kits, um, you know, in, in any way at all? 
So we do not manufacture the rapid antigen tests that have been uh, selected by the president to distribute. Um, we do partner with many of them, and we actually have some of, some of them um, still in stock today that we're providing um, to our enterprise clients and on our uh, everlywell.com platform. We um, are a provider of end-to-end -end telehealth services for uh, through our contracts with Walgreens and Rite Aid, uh, funded by HHS, and have been for um, a couple of years through the pandemic. And so we have a number of different ways in which we work with the government. Um, I do believe that there's an opportunity in this yet to be announced distribution plan by the administration to partner with some of these technology companies like Everly Health and others that are doing great work to modernize the digital distribution of testing. Um, and so if there's a way that we can mm -hmm. serve and be helpful, um, we stand ready to. Is Everly Health looking to uh, go public anytime soon? What are the future plans for the company? An IPO in the future? Um, you know, at-home testing is here to stay. This is something we have been committed to for six years, and we have continued to see rapid growth um, because of the behavior change from the pandemic, not just through the pandemic um, and testing itself. You know, women's health tests are up over 250% um, year over year, STI testing um, and others. And so we are really thinking about how to best uh, keep be competitive strategically and, and keep our business capitalized. And so, um, we are assessing all different options and IPO potentially in our future, but at the moment, digital health companies, as you know, uh, are not faring well in the markets. And I think there um, is some time to really understand how this business model takes hold um, and becomes a normal part of the American healthcare delivery system. Okay, Julia Cheek, CEO and founder of Everly Health. Fantastic talking with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Next on First Move, we are expecting a major development in a legal case involving Prince Andrew and the woman accusing him of sexual assault. Full details next. A settlement between Jeffrey Epstein and the woman who's accusing Prince Andrew of sexual assault is expected to be unsealed later today. It could have an impact on a civil case involving the prince. Max Foster is on this story. So, Max, what more are you hearing from Prince Andrew's defense team? Well, the defense team um, basically argued that there was a settlement reached between Jufre and Epstein in 2009, which basically disqualifies her. Uh, she opts out, effectively, they argue, from future cases such as this one with Prince Andrew. So that case, that document, is being unsealed today. So we're waiting to see what that document says, whether or not it allows Prince Andrew's team to have this case dismissed from the US court. Uh, we'll hear tomorrow from the judge in this case whether or not she believed that to be the case. So there's a hearing tomorrow where the, the judge overseeing the Prince Andrew case will look at this document and say whether or not uh, the, the overall case should be dismissed. If she believes the case against Prince Andrew should continue, then we're looking at potential uh, depositions from the likes of Prince Andrew, Sarah Ferguson, even the Duchess of Sussex, arguably, according to Jufre's team. At least those are the depositions that they'll be asking for. Prince Andrew has, of course, denied all of these, uh, all of these allegations. His current strategy seems to be to have the case dismissed. Uh, another thing the judge will need to be looking at is this um, central allegation from Jufre that she had sex with Prince Andrew in Ghislaine Maxwell's house in London after going to a nightclub. And uh, Jufre says that in the nightclub, Andrew was there, he was dancing and sweating profusely. Now, Prince Andrew, in a BBC interview in 2019, denied ever being in the nightclub and said he had a medical condition, uh, saying uh, which meant he 
he couldn't sweat. Have a listen to how he described that to the BBC. She was very specific about that night. Mm. She described dancing with you and you profusely sweating (laughs) and that she went on to have... Bath, there's a, there's possibly. A, there's a slight problem with 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 with, with the sweating um, because uh, I, I have a peculiar medical condition, which is that I don't sweat um, or I didn't sweat at the time, and that was oh actually yes I didn't sweat at the time because I um, ha- had suffered what I would describe as an overdose of adrenaline in the Falklands War when I was shot at. Uh, and I simply, it, it, was, it, was, it was almost impossible for me to, to, to sweat. And it's only because I have done a number of things in the recent past that I'm starting to be able to do that again. So I'm afraid to say that, 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 that there's a medical condition that says that I didn't do it, so therefore... Um, so Jeffrey's team have asked for uh, documentary evidence of this um, inability to sweat, this medical condition. So far, Prince Andrew's team haven't delivered that. But that's another thing the judge will be looking at on Tuesday. Okay, we will be following this story right along with you, Max Foster. Thanks very much. And that's it for the show. I'm Alison Kosick. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Alison Kosick. Thanks for watching. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.